Welcome to the last Cory Doctor podcast for a little while. I am about to leave for Burning Man. If you're going to Burning Man, I'm going to be giving three talks there. On the 29th, I'll be speaking at Center Camp, doing a talk called Radical Interoperability, an Internet Disassembly Manual. And the next day, on the 30th, I'll be speaking at Palenque Norte at 9.15 in E to give a talk called Choke Point Capitalism, A Better Deal for Creative Labor. And then on Wednesday, the 31st, I'll be at my home camp, Liminal Labs, at 9.45 in Rods Road, interviewing Bunny Wang on his new secure mobile device, the precursor, and talking about trusting trust. And when I get back, I'm going to be on the road because I have a new book out, Chokepoint Capitalism, which I'll be podcasting to you about today. And I'm going to be doing some appearances. They're still being finalized, but at the very least, I'm going to be at Canadians Connected in Ottawa on September the 15th and Unfinished Live in New York on September 21st to 24th. There's also going to be events in Miami. There's going to be another event in Ottawa. There's going to be a signing in New York at McNally Jackson. There's going to be something in Toronto. There's going to be something in LA, probably something in San Francisco. Gosh, there's just a lot coming up. It's going to be great, but I'm also probably not going to sit down in front of the mic for a while. So yeah, I am about to leave for Burning Man. My parents arrive at the airport tomorrow to take care of our daughter. I have been cleaning the house like a madman, going through and organizing everything in my office and my bedroom, which was, as it turned out, the only way to find all the Burning Man stuff that I haven't used since the last Burning Man in 2019. I've never been quite so organized since we moved to LA. It's like finally the very last boxes are unpacked and we're ready to go. And um, I have been entertaining a little, seeing friends before I disappear into book tour land. I was going to say book tour hell, but it's not hell. It's great being on book tour. It's just busy. So I've been cooking every night this week for friends. I'm cooking again tonight. And that's exciting, too. I, just before I sat down, printed out all of the documents I need to bring to Burning Man, my speech notes and my insurance paperwork and all the rest of it. So I am so ready to go. It is going to be amazeballs. Anyway, this week's podcast is about Choke Point Capitalism. This is the book that is coming out on September the 27th, which I co-wrote with Rebecca Giblin, and which we are kickstarting an audiobook for right now, as you'll hear during the course of the podcast. Hang on one second. Let me bring that up and, and see how the uh, Kickstarter is doing here. Let's see. Uh, reloading the page. So five days into my Kickstarter, you folks, you wonderful, kind, amazing, fantastic people, you have donated $75,409. $1,873 of you have done so to pre-order various kinds of books and audiobooks and other tchotchkes and whatnot. So I'm going to give you some top line numbers here. For just plain hardcovers not signed, we sold about 450 of them. For signed hardcovers, we've sold about 212 of them. For hardcovers that are going to be donated to libraries, this is a very cool part. We have done just over 500 of those. And then our publisher has agreed to do 200 more. So about 700 library books have been donated so far. We've also sold, let's see, I have to add these up from two different spots. So it takes a second. Over 1,500 ebooks, over 1,200 audiobooks. It's been really good. And we're only five days in. If you want to help out, if you want to help get a copy of this book in your own hands ahead of time, if you want to help us prove out the 
semi-independent publishing model we've gone through where we went with an independent press and we did our own ebook and audiobook so we could do without DRM, you can go to chokepointcapitalism.com and you will be directed to the Kickstarter. And that brings me to this week's podcast, which is an article I wrote for doctoro.medium.com. And here it is. What is chokepoint capitalism? Why copyright alone can't unrig creative labor markets. Choke Point Capitalism is my next book, co-written with the brilliant copyright scholar Rebecca Giblin. It's a book about how the markets for creative labor were rigged and how artists, fans, tinkerers, regulators, and lawmakers can unrig them. That second part is key. This isn't just a book complaining about how tough things are for artists. It's a book about how we can make things better. There's an obvious reason that our book's focus on shovel-ready projects to put more money in artists' pockets is important. You'd have to be a monster to prefer a world that underpays the artists, musicians, actors, film and TV creators whose work heartens and delights you. But there's another reason that this focus on fixing creative labor markets is so important. Because copyright, the primary tool we've given creators to give them power over their labor, has actually made things worse. To understand what I mean, consider an analogy. Say that every morning you tuck $5 into your kid's jacket pocket to buy lunch. But when your kid gets to the school doors, there's a group of tough bullies who take away his $5. Every day, he goes hungry. Giving your kid $10 won't get him lunch. It'll just make the bullies richer. No matter how much money you give your kid, the bullies will take it. If they get rich enough, they can even bribe the principal to look the other way and hire associates to staff their toll booth from dawn to dusk so no kids sneak past them early in the morning. That's choke point capitalism. Giant companies corral an audience, locking them in through digital rights management, which locks all the media you buy to a platform controlled by the seller, or by subscription fees, or through exclusive deals with venues or radio stations, or by buying out any company that tries to compete with them, or by starving those upstart competitors by selling at a loss whenever a new company starts up so they can't gain purchase. As a creative worker, you need to access those locked-in audiences. You need to stream your music on Spotify and or YouTube. You need to tour in Live Nation venues and sell your tickets through Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster and Live Nation are both the same company. You need airplay on iHeartRadio, which used to be Clear Channel. Or you need to access the retail channels controlled by three record labels, or the two cinematic exhibitors who are controlled by four studios, or the four publishers, or the sole independent book distributor. These companies know that you need access to the audiences they've trapped inside their walled gardens, and they treat you accordingly. They subject you to one-sided contracting terms, locking you into using their suppliers at inflated rates, forcing you to sign over rights that someone else might buy from you, like audiobook or graphic novel or even TV and film rights, requiring you to accede to funny accounting practices that let them rob you blind. And then, to top it all off, they deprive you of the right to sue them by forcing you to sign a binding arbitration waiver. When you're passing through these choke points, it doesn't matter how expansive your copyright rights are. You need to get through the choke point, and the company knows it. Saying, I won't sell you my copyright unless you offer me a better deal, won't get you a better deal. It'll just get you no deal. 
After all, all three labels, all four studios, and all four publishers have the same abusive terms as their competitors, so they all know you can't go somewhere else to get a better deal. But like I say, it's worse than that. Because copyright isn't merely an ineffective means of opening up choke points. Just as bullies can use your kids' extra lunch money to buy off the school administration, the monopolists who capture audiences can use the copyright they extract from creators as a condition of doing business to shore up their choke points. For an example of how that works, consider music sampling, the process of using a digitally recorded snippet of another song, a staple of hip-hop and other contemporary music. In the early days of sampling, musicians didn't bother to secure copyright permission when including a sample, no more than Ella Fitzgerald secured Harry Warren's permission to scat a couple bars of That's Amore in her classic performance of How High the Moon. They assumed that samples were either covered by the fair use exception to copyright, or that the samples were de minimis, that is, too minor for the law to trifle with. During those early years, hip-hop creators wove together compositions made up of hundreds of samples, producing music that was both critically acclaimed and commercially successful. However, thanks to a terrible court decision, musicians began to clear their samples, paying to license them. At first, this was a boon to the Heritage Acts, black musicians from the golden age of blues, funk, and soul, who had been subjected to the most unfair contracting terms and who had been routinely defrauded by the record labels who stole their wages with impunity. But those benefits were short-lived. The labels, who were locked in an orgy of mutual consumption, merging with one another until only three remained, quickly amended their standard contracts to require artists to sign away their sampling rights as a condition of doing business. Thus, all the music that anyone wanted to sample quickly came under the label's control, and since it is very, very hard to buy the rights to a sample from a label without being signed to a label yourself, even artists who might go indie still had to sign a label contract and sign away the right to their samples. As Kembrew McLeod and Peter DeCola described in their essential 2011 book, Creative License, The Law and Culture of Digital Sampling, the creation of a new copyright over samples was quickly turned against artists and in favor of the corporations that exploited them. Not only that, but the need to pay for samples effectively extinguished an entire genre of hip-hop, those tracks that used hundreds of samples. There was no way that an artist could ever recoup if they had to pay a label for each of those samples. This wasn't an obscure offshoot of hip-hop either. The two most successful hip-hop albums in history at the time of the judgment were The Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique and Public Enemies' It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. These albums made millions for the artists who created them and for their labels. But neither album could be made today. If Public Enemy cleared every one of the samples on Fear of a Black Planet, they'd have $6.8 million in sampling fees on $1.5 million sales. If the Beastie Boys had cleared the Paul's Boutique samples, they'd have lost $19.8 million on sales of 2.5 million CDs. McLeod and his publisher were kind enough to supply the chapter in question, along with the notes. And this is a narrator's note. If you go to the article, you can find the link. You could give today's hip-hop creators 100 extra years of copyright and a statutory damages regime that allowed them to seize and sell all the worldly goods of anyone caught reproducing their music without permission, and it wouldn't give them a lick of extra bargaining power when they pass through the three choke points run by the three labels. Far from it. They would be flensed of these new rights at the choke point, and the labels would use those rights to pursue any artist who dared to try and reach an audience 
without first signing an abusive confiscatory contract. That's what we mean when we say that choke point capitalism can't be solved with more copyright, and when we say that copyright can actually make things worse for artists. If you want your kid to be able to buy lunch, you don't give him more money, you get rid of the bullies. That's the true focus of our book. While we do get into a lot of painstakingly researched materials about how the different kinds of choke points, ad tech, book publishing, streaming, ebooks, live venues, etc., are constructed and maintained, the real meat of choke point capitalism is laying out the kinds of things that artists, arts groups, fans, tinkerers, hackers, small business people, regulators, and governments at all levels can do to bust open choke points. Because copyright can help artists, If there are lots of buyers for your creative labor, you can play them off against each other and get a better deal for yourself. We spent a lot of time about how finally applying antitrust to the tech and entertainment giants would help artists. But if there's only a handful of colluding buyers for your work, if there's a choke point that's patrolled by powerful bullies, copyright won't help you. Speaking of choke points, the audiobook market is controlled by one company, Audible a division of Amazon. In some genres, Audible has more than 90% of the market. If you're an audiobook listener, you almost certainly have an Audible subscription, which means that anyone who wants to sell an audiobook needs to be on Audible. But Audible has a rule. To sell in its marketplace, you have to let Audible wrap your audiobook in digital rights management, an encryption scheme that can only be legally decrypted using the apps and devices that Audible has authorized. That means that every dollar a listener spends on an audiobook is a dollar they'll have to give up if they quit Audible, because there's no legal way to convert Audible books, so they'll work on non-Audible players. The more Audible dominates the audiobook market, the worse they treat creators. Professional narrators' wages have been steadily squeezed, as have payments to the independent studios that produce audiobooks. The self-published audiobook creators who use Audible's ACX platform report hundreds of millions in wage theft. Naturally, we won't sell our audiobook with DRM, so naturally, it won't be for sale on Audible. Instead, we're kickstarting pre-sales of the audiobook, along with print and ebooks. We're currently at about $75,000 with 25 days to go. So far, our readers have pre-ordered about 1,500 DRM-free ebooks, 1,175 DRM-free audiobooks, and 650 hardcovers. They've also donated about 700 hardcover copies to libraries. If you work at a library and want to call dibs on one of those donated copies, go to the website and fill in the form. All right, that's it for this week. I won't be back until after Labor Day and maybe not for some time after that because I have a lot of travel coming up. If I don't speak to you until the end of September or even later, I hope you have a great first month of the autumn and I will talk to you when I can. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.